Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about female sexual dysfunction and why sex hurts, and you get to meet the famous Dr. Erwin Goldstein. So before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I'm not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having any health issues, please speak with your friendly neighborhood healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So I am super excited to have on with me today, Dr. Erwin Goldstein, who is coming to us live from San Diego, California. So <laughs> that's not what it is in New York, that's for sure. <laughs> And well, I'll um, show you. here's uh, trying to get the damn sun out of the way, but it's, it's too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wish we had that problem here. It's rainy, but I am so excited to have you on. And I would love for you to introduce yourself to the viewers and the listeners out there watching this and um, just let them know a little bit about yourself and what inspires you to do all the research and all the work that you've done on female sexual medicine. Wow. What a quite, what a fabulous introduction! Thank you. <clears throat> well, I don't know how to introduce myself. Uh, I'm just regular old guy that loves <laughs> what I do. Um, I started. Very uh, humble. Yes. Uh, I'm from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, so I'm not American, uh, although I sort of became an American, but not not by birth. Um, I played hockey all my life. I love electrical biomedical engineering. I became an electrical biomedical engineer. And I played hockey in college. And I met Sue. Those are my three great treasures. Um, and uh, the Vietnam War was going on when I was doing all this. And it was kind of a sad place for engineers. There were no job opportunities, no job listings. And it was kind of sad. And I went home my junior year uh, for spring break. And I came back a, a physician. My <laughs> uh, <laughs> family convinced me that I had no future in engineering, which was probably correct at the time. 
And uh, I spent the summer of my junior year doing the pre-med courses that I had no idea that I even was interested in doing. <laughs> and um, I don't know, I have a brain that's, a, that's not normal. Um, I view everything as puzzles and I have to solve them. And that's my engineering background. And medicine is this very cool um, um, field that is just so broad and so involved, but it involves human beings and bother and distress. And we have the opportunity to help them. So it's like this really cool place for an engineer to find themselves. And uh, I uh, went to medical school and uh, every place I went to, I did a, like a session in cardiology. Well, I wanted to be a cardiologist and I did a session in OBGYN. I said, well, that's for me, delivering babies. How much fun could that be? And then I went to urology and said, I want to be a urologist. And everything was the same. But urology was this cool place where you would have a patient in front of you you could listen to their story and do diagnostic tests. And then rather than saying, well, I'm only a diagnostician, uh, um, I'm not a surgeon, I have to send them to somebody. Urology, you're both this combined diagnostician and therapeutic person. That's a remarkable blessing where, right. where you cover both areas. So you, you really are in charge of the patient. And uh, a cute story, I, had, uh, I was in the emergency room one day and... Uh, you were assigned sort of a, a, a loading place for the ambulance. So whatever I was, room three or something. And a patient comes into room three and comes out screaming and yelling and uh, like awful. And uh, he couldn't pee. He was in mm -hmm. urinary retention and his abdomen yeah. was full because his bladder was full of urine. And he had uh, what's called a stricture. He had a blockage in the urethra, the, the tube. Oh in the bladder and the outside world. And of course, we couldn't help him. You need to get urology. So we get urology on the phone. And in a few minutes, a bunch of people came down. They were smiling. They were laughing. They had this <clears throat> bag of tricks, and they figured out how to get the a tube through the blockage. And his urine uh, retention was drained within a few minutes. And he said, thank you, Othelia. Thank you. I'll never forget that scene. Because yeah. medicine, you work for hours on people, but you don't always get the thank yous. That's uh, but <laughs> saving someone in urinary retention by allowing him to drain his urine is pretty remarkable stuff. And I said, wow, i got to do that field. So I went into urology, God knows, and uh, uh, my chairman, uh, of all things, the, the, the penile implant, this goes back to the original. So the original penile implant, United States of America, was 1973. Oh, wow. And my doctor went to Houston, which is where it was developed, in 1974 and became the penile implant doctor for the region where I was, which is kind wow. of east of the Mississippi. Yeah. So uh, I was starting in urology and working with a professor who was working with people who couldn't get erections and nobody knew why and nobody actually cared why, which was really awful, but they had a solution. They could put this device in mm -hmm. and he became the device dude of the East Coast. And I was working with him and I made a very fatal mistake one day saying, I don't understand how an erection works in the real place. How does that happen? And he said, Dr. Goldstein, we don't care. 
uh, we just put these devices in if it, if it works. And I said, okay, somebody has to care. Why wouldn't people know how an erection worked? That seems so ridiculously silly to say we don't care. So I got NIH grants for 25 years to help figure out how erections worked. And we had a big lab and we were well-funded. And, and that's another irony. It's easy to be well-funded for male sexual dysfunction. Yes. It's impossible to be funded for women's sexual function. Just kind of an irony that I'll... I'll, I'll place it before your eyes. Anyways, in 1991, after more than a decade of trying to understand what was the chemical released when you with your eyes stared at something that was sexually attractive to you that resulted in your sort of penis getting into the erect state, we couldn't know what that was. It was the most difficult uh, investigation, but we finally figured it out. And God only knows, it was a guess. Who would have thought that your yeah. nerves released a gas. The gas was called nitric oxide, O-X-I-D, which think about it. Nitrogen is the most plentiful thing in the air, and the next most thing is oxygen. So if you think of reproduction and our world, it has to be kind of elemental. And uh, I guess we weren't thinking about all that when we started this, but nitric oxide came out, and that was the early 90s. And if kind of as luck would have it, there was a pharmaceutical company in England called Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, which was working on a drug called a phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitor, UK92480, which was the preliminary name for Viagra. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Viagra was a, uh, a phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitor, which is in the nitric oxide pathways further down the system. And uh, they were studying it for uh, for uh, angina, difficulty with pain uh, because not getting that much blood to the heart. And right. it wasn't all that successful. But in giving the medicine to the patients who had to stay overnight and get uh, tested for blood levels in the morning and side effects, they were all waking up with morning erections. And that was pretty intense. And uh, as the project left the, 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 the primary indication for angina, it took on its new role for erection and was incredibly remarkably effective with essentially no side effects. And billions of years later, yeah. uh, we're now on the 25th year of this. Uh, oh, wow. It, it's uh, 1998 it came out. So today's 2023. It's 25 years. Yeah. But in 1998, it happens to be on May 14th, if you want to remember, May 14th, 1998, the New England Journal of Medicine presented to the medical community around the world the first ever phase two and phase three data on on the drug Viagra. And we were horribly invested with Pfizer uh, on the basic science element. We studied the nitric oxide release in the clitoris, and it was obviously very involved in there too. Um, and uh, for reasons that I'm not 100% clear, I was the first name, the first author on this pretty remarkable uh, paper. So I was the corresponding author. So my office, we didn't yeah. have cell phones in those days. Computers were minimal. And uh, people just phoned people if they wanted information. So we got thousands and thousands of phone calls over the, the next bunches of weeks to months. And I'll just point it out to you. If you had to pick and choose what the gender was for all these phone calls, you may you may think gender one, but it's Absolutely the wrong answer. 
No way. Yeah. So it wasn't so it wasn't men that were calling you? No, it was absolutely not men. Well, men had their answer. <laughs> Women were saying, Hey, Dr. Goldstein's fabulous article. Uh, I have an arousal problem. I'm a woman. Ah. What am I going to call? Just I, nobody helps me. Is this for me? Or next one was Dr. Goldstein. I am not interested. Dr. Goldstein, I can't have an organ. Dr. Goldstein, blah, blah, blah. And I said, interesting. I'm a urologist, okay? <laughs> I do men's sexual function. It's got to be that gynecologists have a track in sexual medicine as we did in urology for men. And I That's was true. dumbfounded to find yeah. out. We don't have anything. It wasn't even that they didn't have a track. It was kind of suppressed. The whole sort of investigatory pathway and the therapeutic pathway was was not, not uh, a priority. Yeah. So... In, this was in May uh, to, uh, uh, 14th, 1998. By August, we already started seeing women. I had no idea what I was doing, but we sort of treated them in our model. So our model was biopsychosocial, three-hour visits, uh, intense in, uh, examinations with the psychologist, intense investigations of hormone levels and uh, neurologic levels, essentially what we are doing for men, we just say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll just do what I'm doing for men for women, and we'll see where that takes us. And yeah. I have to say, uh, we were seeing 50% men and 50% women by the fall of 1998. It was just wow. so overwhelming with the need. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been in my uh, life going forward. One of the fallouts from this was I looked at my wife and I said, I really don't know what I'm doing, but obviously there's a need. We yeah. need to form a group of people who are more expert than me because I knew nothing. And yeah. we started Iswish in 1998. Oh. We're on our 25th year of Iswish. It wasn't called Iswish at the time, but uh, eventually became Iswish, I think in the year 2000 or something like that. But um, um, and we got people together who were neurologists and who were psychiatrists and who were sex therapists and who were gynecologists and who were whatever. Whoever was interested came. And our first several meetings, we had 1,000, 1,200 people uh, come. It was quite amazing. Yeah, the, need, the people, once there was this place, the, you know, you build it, they will come concept came came to truth. And now uh, Iswish is uh, this amazing place, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. So I wake up every morning and I have this sort of passion about trying to provide people with sexual health issues, a better life quality. And I don't care about the gender and uh, um, I, I, we do what we can. And to me, everything is a detective's game. Um, and uh, I have the chance to spend many hours with people and try to understand it. And uh, we've described a whole bunch of conditions uh, that uh, uh, have ended up helping people. But boy, oh boy, we are just the beginning of this iceberg thing, and there are gazillions of sex issues that need a better understanding. Well, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I had no idea that you were involved with so much research. I saw actually online that you, it says you have 350 articles published. You're Is up that to 380 something now. Oh my goodness. Wow, that's amazing. And so your research, the articles that you publish, are they both? Are they both for men and women or is it, do you focus more heavily on one than the other? 
well, up until 1998, other yeah, than yeah. animal models for women that we were just kind of uh, uh, having an interest, uh, but not really a focus on, uh, it was all for men. Yeah. But I would say since 1998, my passion is for women, but my reality is there's a lot of conditions for men that are absolutely. Let me give you a little uh, a cute story. So we had a guy uh, call us and he says his penis, which normally hangs down and just gets out of the way, was shriveled like an accordion deep inside his body. And oh, wow. it was painful and uh, um, unhappy and bothersome and he couldn't urinate and he couldn't defecate and his testicles instead of hanging down were up against his scrotum and if you actually watched his scrotum it would go like this like a lava lamp um, and I said okay this is fascinating uh, this is to me the first sexual health problem in man that wasn't about penile erection in right. penis. It was about in the flaccid state in penis. And after a lot of research, I worked with a bunch of people to better understand this. There is a nerve called the hypogastric nerve. It's the nerve that's involved in get rid of the erection. When you finish with sexual activity, you get rid of the erection by activating the hypogastric nerve. Well, this condition has the the, the not-so-perfect name as Hard Flaccid Syndrome, and the acronym is HFS, and it wow. is a really devastating problem for people who have it, is the result of excess uh, sympathetic activity, the fight-or-flight activity, nice. uh, in the efferent, the, the motor, uh, hypogastric nerve. And something is triggering the hypogastric nerve to constantly fire, and it's basically uh, everything I mentioned is just hypogastric nerve uh, um, symptoms. Right. And we're now identifying strategies to, to treat it and uh, blah, blah, blah. My whole point is <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's the detective story for people. Like, I, I, I know you know about persistent genital arousal disorder. Yes. And mm -hmm. That was yet another detective crazy story that we've been working on and on and on. But it just goes, it, it doesn't stop. The, the, and I could give you 10 more that I, we still haven't figured out yet that I'm really, there is a condition where uh, men, it, particularly in men, uh, will have an orgasm. And as all men, unlike women, which have the great opportunity to have multiple orgasms and sort of be ad, adrenalinized as a result of orgasm, Men have one orgasm, and they enter a uh, very, very low, very low dopamine state, a very high serotonin state, and they're like snoring and sleeping <laughs> in four microseconds. You can't move them. You can't rouse them. They're just kind of dead. And then, and then that refractory period ends, and then you resume back to your world. But in some people, it takes seven to ten days yes. for that refractory period. They are a mess. They have brain fog. They can't function. They can't move. They're they're depressed. They're sad. They're and they're and that that way for seven to ten days. They can't hold jobs. They can't wow. do work. They can I mean, it's just an awful, awful condition. So it's a prolonged uh, a post ejaculation refractory period. It goes under the name currently of post orgasm illness syndrome, ah. but it's not a really great name, and we'll probably have to rename it at some point. But. We don't know how that works. I'm trying desperately to help people who have that, but it's another puzzle part. 
it, it's kind of like uh, um, sexuality is this amazing biopsychosocial brain, uh, hormones, nerves, a vascular anatomy thing that affects so many patients. Yes. And we've we've managed to examine ten percent of the complaints that people have. And yeah. Uh, yeah, we're slowly getting there. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy with all the things that you've discovered. You know, what I've noticed is that actually a lot of your research, or at least recently when you were last talking at the Ishwish meeting, you know, it deals a lot with um, the spinal cord and right. um, innervation and nerves and all the regions that you define um, in terms of trying to figure out where the pain or the problem is stemming from. And I find it fascinating that you um, have divided that up. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the regions or how you, when you see a patient that has sexual pain, let's say, let's say it's a woman. And, um, you know, how do you go about defining what those regions are and how you go about examining that patient? So Mary will walk in the room, uh, distraught, uh, um, frustrated, probably has seen 10 previous providers um, uh, at wit's end, partner yeah. at wit's end uh, with Mary, but supportive. Um, and uh, she'll say, I have this unbelievable electric shock, burning, itching pain in my clitoris or in mm -hmm. my labia or deep in my vagina. And I have a, a golf ball feeling inside my uh, rectum. And, you know, all these unusual uh we call them dysesthesias, not to confuse mm -hmm. the reader or the listener, uh, uh, but the word esthesia is to feel, and dysfunctional feeling has been termed dysesthesia. So we're, we're toying with the term GPD, which would be genitopelvic dysesthesia. So someone with pain in her clitoris or other regions is a genitopelvic dysesthesia. So, uh, um, you know, so the clitoris has to be perceived of in the brain. So you touch your clitoris, you you go to the brain. You touch your vagina, you touch your labia, you touch your rectum, you touch your thigh, you touch your toe. It all uh, is end up in the brain. So how does it get to the brain? Well, it has to pass through a bunch of way stations. I mean, it, it, it's either at the level of the genital, and we call that region one, or between the genital and the, the, the neurologic system called the central nervous system, that would be the pelvis perineum, that's region two. In region three, um, which is the lower part of the spine, um, you can examine it easily with what's called a lumbar, L-U-M-B-A-R, MRI. You can also do what's called a sacral uh, MRI, but that gets even lower in the lower spine. So I, we suggest a lumbar MRI. We also suspect a few caveats that it's uh, at least a Tesla three. That means at least with appropriate uh, magnet strength, uh, and we don't need contrast, uh, which is uh, a kind of sometimes dangerous for people. So uh, a Tesla three, uh, and it has to have both sagittal and axial views. So this way and this way, uh, uh, MRI, which is pretty standard. And then um, uh, if something pops up on that. We do what's called neurogenital testing. We also do what's called regional anesthesia tests. It's kind of fun. So uh, if the woman says, for example, uh, my clitoris is on fire, I have a ring of fire right around my clitoris, it's the most annoying thing on earth, 
uh, etc., will take uh, an anesthetic agent and numb the clitoris. So if we numb the clitoris and the pain continues, well, that's obviously not from the region one genital area. Yeah. So we say, well, maybe it's region two. So we'll go to the pudendal nerve, whatever, and if the pudendal nerve is maybe a little tender, we'll numb the pudendal nerve. She said, oh, my God, Dr. Goldstein, will you stop with all these needles because nothing's affecting my clitoris. It's still firing away. So we'll say, well, maybe, therefore, it's closer to the brain now in region three in the lower back. So we get an MRI, and she says, oh, my gosh, you have an annular tear, a kind of a slip disc situation. Uh, where uh, you're irritating what's called a nerve root in the spine. And the nerve root could, could be actually uh, representing the sensation of the clitoris. So we would stick a needle with lidocaine, as we did in the clitoris and the, and the pudendal nerve, we would stick it in at the level of the pathology in the lower back area. And she said, oh, my God, all my pain went away. Uh, and we'd say, wow, so we've identified now the trigger now we can put together a plan to help you. So it's it's all of this detective-y sort of stuff where, where you say, if you have a pain, a discomfort, a dysesthesia, if you find where it's coming from and you numb it and it resolves the issue temporarily, well, at least you've identified where the trigger is. Right. And, uh, it's just all of that stuff. It's amazing. You know, I think that there is so much information um, that you present in sexual medicine. And when we did that Ishwish course, that we just don't get taught in medical school, definitely not in medical school, and not even in OBGYN residency. I mean, we don't even talk about sex in OBGYN residency. And so really, like, where are you supposed to learn all this information? I think it's only by going to these courses do you even know about all of these different things that can happen and the treatments and how you really assess a patient. I mean, it's really unfortunate, I think, for pa for patients because they come to us you know, seeking help and seeking answers and we're not even able to help them at all because we haven't been trained and we don't have that information. And you know, I was reading the book that, um, you co-authored this one, and I know it's not the most recent one, but it's a very good book. And, you know, you talk about how so many women are dismissed because they, you know, people think they're crazy or they just need to relax or they just, you know, they don't, they're too tense and really do not get their symptoms or even anything looked at or addressed. So the, the fundamental point you're making is that there needs to be some group that takes this project on in a real, passionate, scientific way. And that is ISWISH, International Society of Study of Women's Sexual Health. There is no higher level international group that, that dedicates itself to uh, women's sexual health study, diagnosis, and treatment. Um, mm -hmm. It's not coming from gynecology. But it's not even coming from urology. It's not coming from radiology. It's not coming from internal medicine. It's coming yeah. from those subgroups that are actually, uh, for whatever reason, have a virus that makes them interested in women. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm stuck with that virus. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe one day ISWISH will expand into the gynecology community more open. I mean, it's only 25 years old. Maybe it'll take another 25 years, but yeah, uh, at least it exists. And all the all the research in the field is being funded through ISWISH. All the 
detective areas are being fun. Like we have uh, a journal. Uh, Iswish oh. journal is called the Journal of Sexual Medicine. It's called Sexual Medicine, and it's called Sexual Medicine Reviews. We have three journals. And wow. uh, I've been editor of two of these journals, which has been really a fabulous uh, opportunity to, to teach and to learn. And in your free time. In my free time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 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 I have one more year left on one of the journals. Uh, but uh, listen, um, it's not that it doesn't exist. Uh, you have to do a kind of bit of research and find an iswish sort of uh, situation. And if you're a provider listening to this uh, podcast and want to help, please join. We have uh, patient advocate uh, uh, portions of iswish to join. Um, but, you know, uh, I always tell people this one story. It's kind of a sad story, but it's the truth. Uh, I had a uh, PhD from Switzerland who flew to work uh, uh, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, where I'm born, uh, for one year doing uh, her PhD, but she was supposed to do two years. But she ended up completing the PhD in one year. And I get yeah. this phone call from colleagues in Montreal saying uh, this woman would be honored to come spend the next year in San Diego. Well, of course, the weather is way better yeah. than it. I would love for her to spend a year with me. So she arrives and we shake hands and blah, blah, blah. And then she sits in a, a sort of a, a chair next to me as the patient comes in. The patient gives permission. So she sits there and the patient has clitoral hypersensitivity. I'll never forget this. The very first patient she sees had clitoral hypersensitivity. So the partner could touch nearby, but the partner could not touched directly on and it was kind of frustrating for them both and worse was the non-sexual thing she couldn't wear tight pants with the seam in it because the clitoris would get uh, sort of contacted by that and when we brought her into the room and the phd was with me we examined the clitoris and i'll, I'll use my hand here so if this is sort of the head of the penis called the glands and this is kind of the hood uh, or prepuce or foreskin. I, in clitorises, it has the word hood. In men, it's called the foreskin, but same thing. But uh, it's supposed to retract back and forth. But in some women, it, uh, it attaches. And mm -hmm. uh, when we looked underneath the attachment, you could kind of see these uh, what we call keratin pearls that, that irritate uh, the skin and cause the hypersensitivity. So we did a procedure on her. We numbed the clitoris and in, in about 15 minutes got all these adhesions away and everything was fine and she was so happy and i went to the phd and i said okay i think you have your project we don't know anything about this how how many women have this what is the yeah. correct management for them? what are the characteristics of this that make this even happen so she spent the year doing it we of course examine everybody in our model where uh they're they're their physical examination is present on a big plasma TV, high definition in front of them. So everybody gets to see their anatomy. We think, we think yeah, it's just awful. Yeah. Uh, and I'll say the word awful in it with all capital letters, that women don't get to see what the doctor is seeing. I think that's just unfair. Uh, you know, I, I, I examine people, their arms, they stare at their arms as I stare at their arms. Right. Why can't a woman see their genital? It's really not complicated technology to allow yeah. them to see what we see. 
However, uh, so we do that regularly, and uh, we take photographs. So this woman went through 1,200, I'm going to say 61, but it's close to that, photographs of women's clitorises. I mean, we photograph everything, but among the the, the important area for this topic, uh, the, the region of the clitoris was considered. And among the 1,200 photographs that we all looked at, we found about 680 that were relatively good focus and for which we could make a decision if the situation existed for the hood to be attached to the clitoris. And we found, do you know, do you know the number we found? No, tell me. Really excited. The article. It's really a, uh, it's really a, uh, uh, a heavy duty, uh, groundbreaking thing. Uh, 23% of women have attachments, of which a smaller percentage, 14%, have hypersensitivity. So uh, a lot of people have it. Um, uh, more women than men have uh, hood or prepuce or foreskin problems, but uh, it's just not known. No one looks, no one sees. So in writing the paper up, we went to three or four classic gynecology, like you would know, these classic gynecology textbooks. You know, they're, they're like, you know, four inches wide of information. Yeah. They have a teeny article chapter on the word clitoris. And uh, I said, okay, uh, uh, let's read how gynecologists do a physical examination. Let's see if it's different than we're, we're doing, because I had never read a gynecology textbook of yeah. What do you think it says in every one of those textbooks about examining a woman's clitoris? Nothing. It says nothing. It says we don't examine well, actually, them. It says something. It oh, says don't. Say. Don't. Don't. Don't examine a woman's clitoris. Why? It's Pandora's box. You don't have time. You'll you'll get involved in questions and blah, blah, blah. So can you imagine a provider no. telling another provider there's a body part you're not allowed to examine? But that's what it said. I mean, I swear to God that we took it straight out of the textbooks, what the paragraphs were that says don't examine a woman's clitoris. A little shocking, but there you go. That's the that's where it's all coming from. That's so so we reported on the adhesion thing is yet another detective's game and all of this stuff. That's amazing. Well, I'm I'm really grateful for you and for all the work that you've done in this field of medicine and to bring women's sexual health to light and creating the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and all the work that you do. I mean, you know, you are lovingly Back called- at you. Back at you. Thank you for these <laughs> podcasts. Thank you for teaching the real end person. Thank you for for spreading the word because, you know, it's one thing for us to write papers. 400 papers, they sit in a in PubMed where no one looks at them, but somebody has to bring it to the population. And, and that's all about you. I don't do these podcast things. That's one, one more thing for me to consider, but uh, um, I don't get it to the masses and, and you do. And, and that's, that's way more important. So back at you for thanking you. Oh no, thank you. So, well, we are done here, and it's been real and really intimate. But before we go, Dr. Goldstein, what if there is a person watching this, listening to this, and they're like, oh, my God, he is so amazing. How in the world can I get in touch with Dr. Goldstein? How can I figure out where to go if I need some help? And I think, you know, I may have something going on in my spine, and no one else is listening to me. How can they get in touch with you? 
It's actually not that complicated. We work at this amazing 6,000 square foot facility with psychologists, physical therapists, nurse practitioners, MAs, and the like. Um, and it's called San Diego. It is my dream. There's no question. Uh, San Diego Sexual Medicine. S-D-S-M. San Diego Sexual Medicine. And then you can call. We do what are called courtesy calls. So no one can come to us without us speaking to them free to find out where their needs are and if it's appropriate. Because most people are from out of state. Right. Um, and uh, we just want to make sure their travel is uh, has realistic expectations and all that. But uh, we, I, uh, I see if I'm lucky four patients a day because it's three hours per. And wow. uh, um, uh, but typically are complicated and typically are joyful to to sort of figure it out. Wow! Amazing. Well, thank you again for all that you do. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues, and definitely if you're having any sexual health issues, make sure you seek out Dr. Goldstein because he is the godfather of sexual medicine. And um, until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends. And thanks for listening. This show was produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts and made possible by listeners like you. If you ever thought of doing your own podcast, please visit prettyeasypodcasts.com. Oh, 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 oh,